Let's see how we can do. This is Philippians 1, verse 18b through 30. Yes, says the Apostle Paul, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always... Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, that will mean fruitful labor for me. But what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will... Remain and continue with you for your progress and your joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy may overflow in Christ Jesus on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That way, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit as one man contending for the faith of the gospel, not being afraid in any way of those who oppose you. This will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you, not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for him. Since you see that I am undergoing the same struggle that you had and which you now know I am continuing to have. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. How many ways there are for all of this to seem silly, to seem fictitious, to seem like something that's altogether different from what we will face when we walk in the office tomorrow. We're asking you to thread together what we're doing now with what we will do tomorrow in a staff meeting, when we meet with a client, when we teach a class. We are asking you to turn us right side up so that we can be a little picture of a colony of heaven bringing the values and the wonders of that place to bear and this place that's looking for something but it knows not what. Will you visit us, Lord Jesus? We ask you because we have no other hope. Come, Lord Jesus, we invite you now. Amen. We have been going through a series, which is probably the most elegantly and sexily named series that we've ever had, Give Them Heaven. I'm trying to change the lexicon of American evangelical culture, trying to alter our vernacular that we would be a people, I'm not trying to do any of that, I'm just trying to be silly. But I think it's a good moniker because Dallas Willard, you know, 
was a brilliant man, professor at Southern California, but also a goofy man, and he said this to his granddaughter, and I ran across it in an essay, and this is what we've been talking about, because I think this little expression, give them heaven, is an apt moniker that describes what we're up to in the world and what Paul is talking to this Philippian church about. You see, because the church at Philippi was a colony of Rome. They had a citizenship in Rome. They were big stuff. They were proud of this. Like you'd be proud of being an American if you are one. Most of you are. They had a sense of their citizenship. Well, he's going to remind these Philippians that they have a citizenship in heaven, that they are a colony of heaven, that they are a community in which the life of another who is now actively reigning over the heavens and the earth is to be streaming out of us so that people get a glimpse, a living advertisement. They get an interpretive grid to say, oh, this is a small taste of what God is up to. This is the kind of community that gets formed when God moves into the neighborhood. This is the kind of dilapidation that gets refurbished. This is the kind of self-centeredness that gets obliterated and the kind of self-donation that starts to occur. And there's a kind of joy that happens, a kind of helpfulness, a kind of kindness and warmth and generosity in all kinds of ways except with our bodies, which we're very stingy about, sharing them only with our spouses. And... This is a community that gives them heaven. That's what we're called to do. And so as we look today, we're going to look at two gifts for giving them heaven in this passage. But to start out with these two gifts, the first gift is the gift of help. That's a really profound way of saying it. The gift of help. And the second is the gift of knowing you need help. The gift of help and the gift of knowing you need help. But I want to set this up by telling you about a little story that you may have sung on a bus at one point when you were in preschool. It's a fairly severe song. It could be rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America because it's about a woman, an old woman, who swallowed a fly. And I don't know why she swallowed a fly, but the diagnosis is that I guess she'll die. This woman who swallowed a fly then decided to take the remedy of her ailment into her own hands and decided to... Swallow a spider that wriggled and wriggled inside her. And after that, she did something really absurd, swallowed a bird. And if you can imagine that, she then swallowed a cat. She's taking these remedies into her hands. She's trying to alter the course of something that's gone deadly wrong. But after the cat, just being near a cat can make you die. She swallowed one. Then she swallowed a dog. And after that, a goat. I think. I'm not a scholar of this song. But I believe the end is just as stark as the beginning. There was an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. The end. I'm glad you're laughing. Go ahead and pay attention. There was an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. That's pretty stark, okay? That might be frightening to a small child, but I guess it's more funny than frightening. And as one person pointed out in the earlier service, unsolicited, that was a large woman. I can't argue with it. I've never seen her, but I can imagine. Swallowing a horse is hard. She's dead, of course. 
And when you try, when the world tries to bring its own remedies to itself, the end is stark. You know, the apostle in this passage, while I'm being a little bit silly, or a lot silly, he's talking about a kind of help that is very severe and incredibly refreshing. And in fact, it's a kind of help that will come to you when things are worse than just swallowing a fly. And maybe you've had the privilege of swallowing a fly. I've been in an athletic contest in a field where you swallow a gnat or something. You think you're going to die. It's not good. I don't advise it. I didn't do it on purpose. It just found an opening and went in there before I could even give advisement on the situation. But Paul's talking about Severe struggle. Talking about people who may be trying to oppose this church. Their faith is going to be maybe violently opposed like he's facing. He may die. He doesn't know. He's in prison. He says, I'm giving you a kind of help that will let you not be afraid of those who will oppose you, which will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed. And then we get back to the the severity part. God, through the apostles, keeps putting in our minds this idea that life is a very serious business. Happily, there's joy in it. There's frivolity and there's goofiness. But it's a very serious business. He says, they're going to be destroyed and you're going to be saved. And that by God, that he envisions a day when there will be this scrutiny. And so people can't provide their own remedies. If you think that the thing that you most need is something that you can provide or that someone else can provide for you, it's the same thing as a lady who swallowed a fly. He's probably going to die. He takes matters into her own hands and eventually swallows a horse after a whole litany of other animals that she tries to remedy the situation with. Well, Paul says, here's how you remedy your predicament as people. First, realize this gift of help that is offered to you as a believer. And if you're not yet a believer, if you're somebody searching this out, this is something you can start doing right away. He says this, as he's in prison, yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. It's the plain and simple. There is a correlation between you praying as a church for me here in prison that is going to alter my situation. Now, you may realize this, but I'm here to tell you that prayer, as the Bible envisions it and as, you, as it envisions it and as you hopefully have discovered, is a real thing that feels like nothing. Have you experienced that part of it? Hopefully you've seen prayers answered before, but if you've given yourself to prayer ever, If you said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend some extended times of prayer because I need Jesus more than I need breath. My life is going badly. And I need an infusion of grace. I need need to call Christ onto the scene. Because, you know, that's what Paul's saying. When God's people pray, it brings Jesus onto the scene of any kind of dismay, any kind of dilapidation, any kind of decay, any kind of graffitiizing of God's good creation. You can enlist Jesus to be right there on the spot. But when you're doing it, it may feel like there are 400 million other things that would be more worth doing. 
It may feel like you are doing something that is utterly preposterous. I'm talking to the air. Is anybody listening? He says, by your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Christ Jesus, I know that my situation will alter. He gives God's people an invitation to call Christ onto all the scenes of the movie of your life. That's really powerful. That's a powerful resource if you should accept it. To call Christ onto the scene of all the moments of your life and all the moments of the lives of those around you, you can call Christ onto the scene. And as Rashad read in that psalm, there is an invitation here. God says to his people, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will honor me. God has set up this configuration where your need meets with his resource, which gives him a platform to demonstrate to the world that the thing best to do is to put all your eggs in his basket. I called Little Caesars. I was doing some work for the poor. Myself, I was poor with hunger. And a fellow answered the phone. I think I was being punked. He said something like, Joshua and Jericho? Or something like this. I, hadn't, I said, uh, excuse me? What? And he said, uh, uh. And I said, is this little Caesar's? And he goes, yeah, what do you want? That's what he said, exactly. Yeah, what do you want? And it wasn't Hutch. I would say that to Hutch's face. What do you want, he said. And it made me think, we're going to have a wonderful conversation. All it made me think was, if I'm not careful, this guy's going to spit on my pizza. What do you want? And some of you may have had the encounter of getting a call from a spouse or somebody, an employee at work or a colleague, and, and you make sure, whether consciously or no, to let them know that they are interrupting something. Yes! Text messages have helped me a lot in my marriage because sometimes I can be a B-U-T-T head. But see, here's the thing. Jesus has invited you to pray. He has configured this situation where he likes it when his people pray. He's made it a primary means for helping to rule the world and enact all that he means to do in the renovation of the world. It is a real thing to him, and he loves it when you pray a lot. It's one part of your maturity that never changes from being like a small child. You don't grow out of calling on God a lot. In fact, you'll probably grow into it more. A sign of your maturity will not be that you don't need God as much. It will mean that you need him more than ever. And so you'll pray more than ever. It's a help that is given to you. And one of the things that it does is as you pray, Paul has learned this. He knows that help's going to come. His situation's going to be altered. Whether that means he's actually going to be released from prison or that means he's going to go to be with Christ, which is better by far. In his mind, staying here is worse, just so you know. That's his theology. 
being with Jesus is best, staying here is worse. That, we don't think that, but that's what he thought. But you know, the other thing that happens when you pray, there's this validating feature of it. I saw a, a tweet from Sammy Rose. He said, if you go to the farmer's market and you don't Instagram it, did it even happen? I thought that was funny. If you go to the farmer's market and you don't Instagram it, did it even happen? You're in a moment right now where the only things that you can verify are true are things that are a result of you standing outside of yourself, watching yourself, being aware of other people watching yourself. That sounds healthy. But prayer is one of these things. You go, you sometimes do it together, and you sometimes do it alone. And what happens is, as you realize that you are being listened to, you start to believe in God. A lot of you think, if I, I just don't believe in God enough to really have faith that these prayers are going to matter. No, 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 that's not how it works. Dave Hansen would say, what you need to do is you go to prayer in order to get faith. In order to believe that it matters. And all kinds of people discover that they are loved when they know that they are listened to. And God's listening is a vacuum that sucks prayers out of us. And as you pray, as you rehearse your troubles and pour out your sorrows, and you pray for Christ on the scene of your troubled kid's life, of your business tanking life, of the church's life, of your service in the community's life, as you pray Him on the scene, you know what happens? As you do it, I promise you, do it, and you'll see. You start to believe he's listening. You start to believe that you're loved. You start to believe that you're cared for. You start to believe that what you're doing that feels like it doesn't matter, matters tremendously. Prayer only matters to me while I'm doing it. When I'm not doing it, I say, I need to go pray. I need to set aside time to pray. And then I say, hey, my, oh, my tire doesn't have that little black cap on it. I can't pray until I get that taken care of. Anything seems more important than praying when you're not praying. That makes me think it is something. That there is some sinister force out there somewhere that does not want you to pray because it actually is something that feels like nothing. Prayer is a gift of help. That's you're invited to do. It validates your own faith and it bolsters it and convinces you that you're loved. And the other thing is I think you should feel pressured about it. I said to Judge Hill the other day, as I was talking to him on the phone before our prayer meeting, he comes to us. I said, Judge, I know you're not going to be able to make it. Don't feel any pressure. That's my favorite pastoral motto. Because I am deeply committed to having the manifest approbation of all the people, as our book of church order says. I want people to like me. So I think it's very important never to put any pressure on anyone ever. That's biblical. <laughs> Jesus never put any pressure on anybody. Take up your cross and follow me and all that. But you know what Judge Hill said to me? He corrected me in taking pressure off of him. I said, I don't want you to feel any pressure. Come whenever you can. He said, brother, I think we should feel pressured to pray. I think we should feel pressured to pray. So there, you should feel pressure to pray together a lot, alone a lot. Pray twice as much, said Jack Miller, as you think you have time for. And see if it won't bring Christ on the scene. I think prayer is one of those things. It's like giving. It's part of the way that God helps us operate with one arm behind our back so that he gets all the credit. 
You spend time in prayer, it feels like nothing. You get to see him act in ways that you couldn't have imagined. And the way this could work out practically is you just think about there are people in your life right now that need to change and you feel an inordinate desire to change them. I haven't been snooping on your email, listening to your phone calls. No, nobody uses phones for calls, do they? There are people you want to change, for instance. There are people who keep letting you down. There are people who keep not coming through. And there are two different ways that we take it upon ourselves to change others. One is we bully them. This is when you govern people with your insensitivity. You don't have any regard for them. You just shame them or frighten them into doing something. Coaches are notorious for this. Young blood, what are you doing? This I heard by a man with really good breath right in my face in my football helmet. It's lovely. You're like, surely I'm doing the right thing. This is why you're yelling at me, right? You can bully people into doing what you want. You can browbeat them. You can make sure they feel awful that they're not doing what you want. And you can get them to change, maybe. Especially if you're bigger than they are. The other way is you can, we're going to use B words, you can uh, boohoo. Which is governing other people by your sensitivity. You can bully, which is governing by your insensitivity. You can boohoo, which is governing them by your sensitivity. Like C.S. Lewis said, how I loathe sensitive people tyrannizing others with their emotions. They're social pests, he said. You get hurt about everything. You change people by your hurt. But you know what you can do instead. What if you believed that the only person you know who has access to any human heart that you know is the Lord? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he will. The only person that you know is the image of God alone, made by God for God. Why don't you pray to that God for that person that you're intent on changing? Because all of you got somebody like that. Why don't you talk to God about them way more than you talk to them about it? That would be neat. Prayers as a gift of help. We're invited to do it. It validates us as it do it. We should feel pressured to do it and believe that God will do what we can't. Prayers as a gift of help. And the second gift is this, the gift of knowing you need help, which is another way of talking about suffering. As Johnny Erickson Tata said, it's when you have what you don't want and you want what you don't have. That encompasses a whole range and spectrum of things. The apostle says, for it has been granted to you Not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for him. Now that is awesome, isn't it? Mm. It behooves me to tell you this because I think there are people in here who are neurotic enough. And most Western people, because we don't suffer that much, not like the rest of the world has in the history of the world. We live in fear of suffering way more than we actually suffer. And the fear of it is terrible. There's all manner of Western diseases. We we have more anxiety than anybody. We have more stuff than anybody. That should say something. But God doesn't tell you you're going to suffer. That it's been given to you to suffer so that you can walk around and think, Hey, I I feel happy right now. What's going to happen bad in three seconds? Hey, it's sunny right now. When am I going to get struck by lightning? 
He's not telling you that you're going to suffer so that you can walk around expecting that around the next corner somebody's going to club you in the knees. He's telling you this because when you do suffer, when you are feeling lonely, when you are feeling alienated, when you are feeling fearful, when you are in chronic pain, when you're in relational difficulty, when you're being slandered, when it feels like God's not on the scene, the temptation is to imagine that somehow or another God's left me. He went on a vacation to the Caribbean and he left me here as an orphan in my house to fend for myself and I'm out of mac and cheese. I got nothing. Well, God's saying, no, no, no. You have been given to suffer. In other places, he says, it's through many hardships that you must encounter the kingdom of God. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. The Bible is pretty uniform in this. If you worship the Savior who suffered, you're going to suffer. But it's to help make sense of it. It's to help give it some comprehension in your life. Because if you suffer senselessly, it's very hard to deal with. If you have some sense that whatever suffering you have right now has been given to you, you know what you can do? This is your mission should you choose to accept it. You could imagine that whatever your present suffering is, whether it's worrying about a kid, whether it's worrying about your money, whether it's terrible headaches, whether it's a great loss that you've encountered, whether it's uncertainty at your job, my mission that's been given to me by Jesus Christ is this present suffering. Will you, oh God, resource me for it? Bring honor to yourself through it. Deliver me from it so that you'll get honored. Sustain me through it so that you'll get honored. Because every suffering that happens, whether it's by actual persecution for the faith, or whether it's by the normal snarls of living that grind you down, all of it, your enemy wants you to question. He wants you to say, God's not good. It doesn't matter to serve him. I may as well seek my own remedies. Like the woman who swallowed a fly and then thought, I guess I'll go for a spider, a bird, a horse, a cat, a goat. Pursue your own remedies. Take your own path. Don't listen to God. He doesn't know. He's not on the job. And if you believe that suffering is given to you in much the same way it was given to Jesus, it identifies you and links you with him, then you can say, this is my mission should I choose to accept it. And I can pray that God will see me through it. You know, Mr. Rogers, you know Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers was interviewed once. He's no longer with us. But he was asked why he went on TV. And he said, because I hated it so much that I thought maybe there would be some way to go into this business and bring some nourishment and nurture and encouragement from this thing that is so awful, but it has such good potential, named TV. As my professor called it, the Medusa box. So you'll have to think about that. Clash of the Titans, way Homer. Okay, think about it later. But Mr. Rogers said, I went into TV because I hated it so much. And I think this is part of what the Christian does. Part of the assignments that God gives us is he sends us into the things that might seem hateful to us. Like your marriage... Like your job, like that crummy house you have to live in, like that crummy financial situation that you're in, like the crummy physical situation that you're in, 
the people that you have to live with, to work with, the jobs that are hard, but you go into them expecting Christ to be on the scene, that this is the mission that's been given to me. Make yourself known through me, Lord Jesus. Make yourself known. See, the Bible would urge you as Christians to have your own sort of Second Amendment. In our parts, the Second Amendment is the most fantastic thing about the United States of America. Isn't it? Isn't that the best part about being an American? Is that you can carry around a cannon in your Toyota Camry? If you need a missile launcher to wear on your back to church, fine. Everybody needs that at church. If you need pistols and shotguns and assault rifles, fantastic. I don't care about that. Fine. Great. But you know what the Bible would enjoin us to do? It says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. That's what Peter says. Arm yourself with the same attitude. I'm going to suffer. And my suffering is my assignment. That's our second amendment. That God gives us this armament. That you're going to suffer, but it's never going to be alone. You're going to suffer with the Christ who will make himself known. In fact, makes himself known best when it seems like he's most not there. Marva Dawn has said... And I don't know if you know Marva Dawn. She spoke to us at RTS. She's written a book about God's tabernacling and weakness. Marva Dawn is crippled. She's blind in one eye. Has like 17% functioning in her kidneys. Nothing in her body works right. Her life is one big strain. And she was talking one time and she says, as she's always on crutches, she can, she's afraid she's going to lose the sight in her other good eye, her only good eye. She said, sometimes I look at God and I say, why does my life have to be so hard? Do you really need me to be this weak? Because she had encountered what the apostles encountered. That's why he can say you've been, it's been given to you to suffer. That he knows that God likes to play with a stacked deck. He knows that God likes insuperable odds. He knows that what God loves about suffering is that it removes the masquerade. There is nobody in here that when you're in the midst of something that you can't handle is under any pretense any longer that they can find remedies for their own life. You know you've got to have help from the heavens. And so when Paul says, please, 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 get this tormenting thing away from me. This hornet of harassment in his life. A thorn, he's called it. And God says, there, there, little fella. My grace is sufficient. My power made perfect in weakness. And he says, therefore, like a Martian, therefore I will delight, delight in insult, hardship, persecution, trouble. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God's power will rest on me when I'm weak. I don't wish that were the case. I hate that being the case. I want every day to be sunny. I don't want to have a headache. I want my back to feel good. I would like to be able to watch the Braves game unbothered. But it isn't my universe. And God knows what's best for me and he knows what's best for you. And this is his method that he uses. And some of the suffering that's given to you is not only for you. 
Last night, Kristen Jelly let me know about Matt. I don't know how he's doing this morning. Matt has these debilitating migraines. Pray for him and them. We have a number of people in our congregation who have these debilitating physical ailments that really do alter the course of their and their family's life. They're in chronic pain, chronic awfulness. You know what's amazing to me, though? Matt was in this bad way, and Kristen asked me to pray. I, I sent out a text to like 50 people. If you weren't on there, don't get your feelings hurt. It wasn't a scientific exercise. I just... And you know what happened that was amazing? That not one person said, Leave me alone, you idiot. Quit texting me. I got all these texts back, people saying, Thank you for letting me know privilege to be on it on it we're praying for him now we're stopping everything thank you for telling us about this we're so glad we get to do this and i said are you guys from outer space but a lot of suffering isn't for you it's for others some of the suffering that's going to happen in your life is going to be so that comfort can come in so that you can offer comfort to people that are suffering There are certain kinds of empathy that you will never know until you've suffered in that particular way. Some of your suffering will be part of your calling. Some of you don't want this, but you've got a whole bunch of people praying for you because you're so weak you can't do anything about it, and that's how God's configured it. And I wish it weren't that, but that's what it is. There's a gift of knowing that you need help. Which is what suffering creates. And there's the gift of help that comes through Jesus Christ. And I'll close with this. There's a story. It's in the Bible. You know Gideon with his fleece and his tests. He's going up against a group of dudes. Kind of an ancient Taliban, ISIS, the Midianites. And you know what's amazing about this story is that Gideon is told by God that when he goes into battle, there's a certain worry that he has. He's too well-resourced. He has too many troops. He's worried that he's got 22,000 troops. He's thinking, if my people go out to fight, and they got all this muscle and brawn and technology behind them, they're going to think that they are the champions Of the world. They're going to give Queen an idea about singing a song. It's going to be overplayed and it's going to be a nightmare. So what I think I'll do is I'm going to pare them down. I'm going to to get them down to some reasonable number for a fight. Like 300 people. 22,000 to 300. Yeah, that sounds about right. I want a fair fight, which is a deeply unfair fight. And I think I'll use trumpets and glass jars instead of Uzis and drones. So that at the end of the episode, when the Israelites win, the only conclusion that they will come to is, man, (laughs) the only one we need to deal with is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does stuff. He's with us. He's going to change stuff. He's going to operate stuff. And it doesn't matter what the odds are. And it doesn't matter how hard it is because he won't ever leave us. And if we have one arm tied behind our back, that's fine because we have his strong right arm on our side. If you face suffering today, do not think 
that means God has abandoned you. Suffering is not something that is aimed at you. It is a gift for you. Jesus has suffered for you. You will not suffer for your sins. Jesus has suffered for them. He has walked through the furnace, so you will not. Your suffering has another purpose. And in the end, it will be to show you and the world and our community that the love of the Lord is better than life. Don't take remedies into your own hands. Use the remedies that Paul says. There is a gift of help from the Spirit of Jesus that brings him on the scene, every scene that you're in. It's called prayer. And there is a gift called suffering that lets you know you need help so that you'll use that first help a whole bunch. Let us be a people who wear God out with our coming so that he will astonish us often with his coming. Amen.